Welcome to this week's two-part episode of For What It's Worth, called Long-Haired Country Girl. I'm your host, Blake Melnick, and this episode is the next installment in our Past the Jam music series, where our current artist-in-residence, Blair Packham, will join me to help pass the jam to an amazing new artist. Rooted in the heart of the Kootenai Rockies, she draws her inspiration from the wild and rugged landscape that she calls home, from the rivers she wades in, and from the small-town working life she leads. With her use of traditional instruments, kinetic foot percussion, and old-time lyrics, she puts herself into the category of roots and blues with just a hint of old-time and bluegrass. She has recently incorporated playing electric lap steel into her live shows, where she fuses her love of blues and bluegrass together into a rock-and-roll one-woman performance. With the help of an upgraded loop station, an octave pedal, and a pair of handcrafted butterbox cajones set up as a kick and snare drum, she can recreate a sound that could only be accomplished using a three-piece band. Using distorted slide guitar and foot drums to cover bands like Led Zeppelin, Joe Walsh, CCR, Muddy Waters, and Jimi Hendrix, she has taken her solo shows to a whole new level. She has played alongside some of the best musicians in the East and West Kootenays and over the years has developed a multi-instrument musical diversity which she brings to every performance. She has developed a style that is truly unique and a reflection of who she is. From delicate stories of love and loss to tongue-in-cheek murder ballads to rock and roll covers that get the audience out of their chairs dancing, she writes from the heart resulting in a degree of authenticity seldom seen in a live performer. Introducing the extraordinary Heather Gemmel. Heather, so nice to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you've had an interesting last couple of weeks. For our audience's sake, we had planned to have Heather on the show two weeks ago. Heather was pregnant and uh, was expecting a new baby. And then two days before our scheduled interview time, Heather had her baby. So, yeah, how was that? No, it was, it was great. I'm happy to not be pregnant anymore and I'm happy my baby's out and he's safe and he's healthy and I'm healthy and uh, happy to get back recording in my studio and playing music again. I've just been binge watching television while I'm recovering here and I'm feeling sure. really, really good now. So I'm ready to get out and about a bit more. Yeah, it's amazing how fast you've recovered. To be honest with you, I kind of hoped that we might have been in the middle of an interview and then all of a sudden you say, wow. So I got to go, got to have a baby. <laughs> I know. Well, it was kind of early labor, two weeks early. And I was having contractions, but they slowed down in intensity. And it was either send me home or they break my waters for me. And then boom, everything picks up. And so instead of going home and handling moderate contractions for who knows how long, could have been days, we decided just to pick up the speed and out he came. Wow. Great. And a big yeah. baby boy. Yeah, big baby boy. Yeah, he's very healthy. And his name is? Casey James Pollard. Very nice. Very nice. So it's a very busy time around your household. Yeah, 
getting into the swing of things. Toddlers at daycare and we've just got a uh, little Casey around. Just he sleeps a lot. He sleeps, feeds and burps, poops and pees. And that's about it right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations again. And thanks for agreeing to come on the show. I know this is very soon afterwards. And uh, so we really appreciate you making the time. So I like to start these interviews with a little bit of background about our guests so our audience gets a sense of who you are. So you were born where? I was born in Victoria. I grew up for 10 years in Victoria on the island and my dad's job ended up coming to an end there, which was not a very enjoyable job. And he ended up taking a job at Fort Steele Heritage Town just outside of Cranbrook. And so he moved out here first to see whether or not it was, you know, going to be a suitable change because it was a fairly big move and and then we followed mom sold the house and we came out afterwards and it was a really good move for us so moved out here when I was 10 and my brother was 12 and that's what brought us to Cranbrook and I've been here and I've moved to other places in between for school and for some other reasons and stuff too but I've always come back to Cranbrook Kimberly and now I live in Kimberly just uh, 20 minutes outside of Cranbrook and work in Cranbrook right Kimberly is a wonderful place, a good place to be. Good place to be. I think that's our slogan. That is your slogan. So it must be difficult balancing your career with motherhood and uh, little children. How do you manage that? Well, you mean my regular job or music? (laughs) Well, both. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I haven't really had to juggle much because I've been on maternity since my first baby was born in 2020. So they're going to be just a a hair shy of two years apart. So I really was only back to work like about two months. And then I took an early maternity leave for this baby because I felt just so much more pregnant, honestly. And there is an opportunity with COVID EI back to work kind of stuff. So I was able to get off a little bit early and not have to get my full 600 hours. So my plan was to get into the studio and do as much recording as possible before baby number two comes out. And I I, I did it. I got a ton done. I'm still not totally done, but what I've sent you for tracks, that's what I've been working on. I've got quite a bit more done, but anyway, that was my big push before this baby came out to get some recording done. So I was off a little bit early, so I didn't have to juggle much work with (laughs) being a mom. I've just been being a mom and uh, I've got daycare secured for the firstborn and then the secondborn gets to um, be top of the list. Uh, So I'm not stressing about daycare when I go back to work in, I guess it's 2022. Yeah. 2023. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to keep track these days. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it though. Maternity is amazing. And once I was able to play music again, like when 2020 shut down all live gigs, it didn't right. really matter to me. I was kind of selfishly just thinking, well, I was going to take a break anyway. And so the lack of being able to play live didn't affect me. I was fortunate in that way. I just sat back and felt bad for everybody else trying to deal with playing electronically over live streams and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I didn't have to juggle much because my plan was to take a break anyway. And so now I'm taking another break. And then hopefully this summer, since I've already done it before, I know what to expect with how tied you'll be to your baby until uh, breastfeeding tapers off and solids come in and dad can help feed a little bit more. So hopefully by summertime, I'll be able to play live again in the evening and we'll see what bedtime, how bedtime goes for dad. (laughs) Well, you did have the opportunity to play live during the pandemic, and I saw you playing at the Stonefire Grill solo act. You looked just like Joni Mitchell did in 1967. 
And then you pulled out your lap steel guitar and started playing Tied to the Whipping Post, the seminal guitar song by the Allman Brothers. And I was absolutely blown away. I'd seen you play a number of times before, but you were pretty country and folky then, so you really took me by surprise with that song, and in particular with your command and understanding of the blues. Before the interview, I was thinking back on the first time I met you, and it was a number of years ago. You'd come to visit my niece, Chelsea, and we were over at their place sitting around after dinner, and you pulled out your guitar and invited everyone to join you in playing music. And I remember how gracious and accommodating you were with our varying degrees of ability and how you engaged everyone in the act of making music together. That's something that seems to come naturally to you, the gift of drawing people into music, regardless of their ability, and helping them overcome their self-consciousness so they can just have fun. I love playing with people. I love harmonizing and jamming. It's one of my favorite things about music. So yeah, if you're sitting down with a group of people, I don't know if you've ever been in a jam where somebody just plays a jam buster where no one can follow along. It's too difficult for everybody to jump in with and it just ends up being that person performing so to speak with everybody being dumbfounded around them trying to participate and not being able to so if I'm playing with a group of people the best part is when everybody can join in so that's the goal when you're jamming right well I remember you showed us the leg kick the leg kick for our audience is something that Heather taught us when we were all playing together that evening When you've never played with anybody before and you're playing your song and it's coming to an end, you thrust your leg up in the air and everybody knows that you're about to wind it down. Yeah, I gather a lot of my jamming (laughs) etiquette from bluegrass jams. So in bluegrass jams, you you keep your eyes up and you're looking around. Usually you're going in a circle. So when it comes to your part, if if someone's sung a couple verses and then you're sitting to the generally left of them, um, they'll offer you a break or an instrumental little chunk to follow the melody if you're comfortable. And you can say pass or you can just shake your head or whatever. That's one of the jamming standards. And then when the song's coming to an end and no one really knows, the main player just lifts their leg up in the air and then you know that the song's going to stop so we can all stop together. (laughs) I thought that was great. Okay, so you were born in Victoria, you moved out to Cranbrook, now you're living in Kimberley. When did you start becoming interested in music? It was kind of late in the game. A lot of the musicians I know have been playing since they were like five years old, and I didn't start playing music till I was about 17. My parents came from a musical family in a sense that they listened to awesome music. My dad's got massive amount of records, and he would always be playing records, and there would always be music on in the background. He would listen to lots of tunes, but I never actually played anything till my dad gave my mom a guitar for an anniversary present before I was born. And it was in the basement and I got inspired by some kids playing in the halls in high school. And I was like, man, I want to learn how to do that. And I knew that we had a guitar And I remember screwing around with the tuners and like tightening the strings and loosening the strings. And I didn't know how to tune it. And I remember snapping one of the strings as a young kid before I was inspired to play in high school. Mm -hmm. And it scared me so much. I remember as a child, I I thought I broke the guitar and I think I (laughs) put it away and hid it out of view. Not like it was in view. It was always under the stairs. But anyway, it wasn't until high school. I was like, I want to learn how to play guitar. And there's some guys playing around. There was guitar course and I couldn't get into it, but. I think at that point, the internet did have tabs. There was Ultimate Guitar Tab online. And we had a computer and I was, you know, just learning how to use the internet, I think, at that point. And that was what helped me learn. 
as the internet. And then listening to the guys at school play, they're pretty good. So that was what got me playing. So you were self-taught. You have no formal music training. No, just pure jealousy. That's what got me And And I didn't start singing. I didn't sing at all. I barely sung the Canadian national anthem when it was time to sing at school and stuff. It wasn't until I started playing guitar that it was just easier to follow along in the song when you're singing it. So that kind of came later too. Do you remember the first song you ever played? I think I do. I think it was Behind Blue Eyes. Ah, a great one. (laughs) A classic. Yeah. The Who. Yeah, The Who. And I think, uh, time of your life was pretty popular at that point by Green Day. Like I went through a little bit of a metal stage too and was playing a little bit of metal and stuff. I had an electric guitar fairly quickly after I picked up the acoustic. So that's kind of what got me going. And then it wasn't long until I started playing. I saw there was an open mic on a sandwich board, chalkboard outside one of the bars downtown. And dad knew how I would always learn something new and come upstairs and show them like, hey guys, mom and dad, look at this. And they're both so supportive early on. And he was able to get me into an open mic before I was of age to go into a bar. That was before you could go into bars when you're a teenager and then I got playing in front of people and I, I loved it and I'd play softball quite competitively all through my life actually until I stopped in college and I would play for my teammates and that was kind of my first playing live you know for mm-hmm. my friends mm-hmm. my friends and whatever open mic I could get into well you're certainly not a shrinking violet I know that about, about you so the courage <laughs> to get up and play I, I was that hard for you that first time that first open mic Getting on stage. Totally. Was it? I think so. I think so. Yeah. It was so long ago now, really. I've always been an extrovert. So that helped. Yeah. Yeah, That helped. I I love making jokes and having fun. I've always been in a a team environment. So I've always been around people and stuff like that. So that came easy, but playing for people, making mistakes in front of people, that was always really daunting. It made me just want to get better. So I didn't screw up in front of people. So it's good ambition to practice. Yeah, for sure. When I've seen you, you've always been a very gracious. You're very communicative with the audience. You engage people in the music. And I think that's really important to bring people into your music. And and so it really is a lot of fun to see you play. I love going to see live comedy and the good ones. I love the ones that interact with people in the first row. They ask Mm -hmm. them where they're from and try to play off them a little bit. And I always loved that. So I I always try to incorporate that. If it's a small enough venue, which generally it is, (laughs) I can be quite interactive with people and then walk around and say hello to people during breaks and stuff. I think I would appreciate. So I, I try to do that too. Yeah. And it's always nice for the audience to meet the musician on stage. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, you play a lot of instruments. This is one of the other things that's always amazed me. Every time I see you, you seem to have mastered a new instrument. So Uh you must have this natural kind of ear for music. It doesn't seem to take you very long to pick up a new instrument. Yeah, you know what? I did play a little bit of piano when I was a kid, but just like religion, my parents never forced anything on me. They were forced to do things when they were kids, and I think they didn't want to push me to do anything I didn't want to do. So I played a little bit of piano, like kind of one-handed, learned a couple songs, but I wasn't like super into it, but they could hear that I could pick it up by ear. So I could play piano by ear, but when I was a little kid, it just didn't really click until I got that inspiration later in life. So that kind of followed me. And it wasn't until I started going to this bluegrass camp, I noticed whenever I'd be in a jam at someone's campsite, and then the next night I'd see that same person playing a different instrument or they'd have two or three with them. And then depending on the song, pick up a different instrument. I always found that really inspiring. So 
I think I I started picking up the Dobro, aka lap steel and uh, banjo at bluegrass camp, and then the pedal steel came later. But it's just because they all kind of coincide together, a lot of these tunings and different instruments, they have their friend or their mate. So a Dobro is in a G tuning and generally a standard bluegrass style banjo is in a G tuning. So you'll see a lot of banjo players also play the Dobro. Dobro. You'll see a lot of mandolin players playing the fiddle when the tunings are similar. It's like you're already at home base a little bit. And my gateway into the bluegrass world was coming from being a blues player, like a really avid blues player for a lot of the beginning years of my musical journey. Uh, A bunch of my buddies from Cranbrook and Kimberly would go to this thing called Nimble Fingers Bluegrass Camp in Sorrento, BC. And I'm like, man, I want to go to this. There was like, there must have been like the first year I went, there was probably over 25 people from Cranbrook, Kimberly and Fernie that went to this camp. And that just sounded like such a riot. Six days of musical learning and jamming and camping. And all the the instructors were really talented musicians from all the different bands that were there. So I really wanted to go, but I'm like, well, I already know how to play guitar. Which instrument should I get? And so since I was into blues, I picked the dobro because the dobro can sound really happy and really melodic, but it's also got this dirty, yes, grungy kind of a blues effect you can get from it too. And mm-hmm. so a friend of mine was playing that. And I seen him play it on stage and I started YouTubing people playing the dobro and that's what got me into the bluegrass scene. But I got to keep my blues roots and now I'm bringing it back with the lap steel and adding some distortion to that g-tuning that i've grown so fond of right so like a layering approach yeah oh totally when you're playing as a soloist because i've played in several bands over the years but now that i'm basically just playing solo it's just so much easier especially just right now with the pandemic and getting together and getting sets together and stuff it just makes your solo performance so much more interesting i think when you have more than just a guitar on stage and you've incorporated all kinds of different sounds not just stringed instruments correct Uh, Yeah, let's see. So I play harmonica. I don't really play as much bluesy harmonica as I wish I could. I run out of tricks in my bag of tricks fairly quickly when I play blues licks. But when I follow the melody and play straight harp, I really love playing that. So I'll play a lot of melodic stuff with the harmonica. And then I don't know what else do I got going on here. I play the loop station. Oh, and I I play foot percussion. Ah, there. That's what I was waiting for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Foot percussion. So for a couple years there, after I went solo, well, I think I was dabbling a little bit with it when I was playing with one of my partners. I had just done a bathroom reno and I used the drawers out of my old bathroom cabinetry and mounted a couple microphones in each one and then had a tambourine drilled to the inside top of one and then nothing of the other. And then ran a couple holes and then put a couple mics in and then played with the EQ on each one. And then I'd get a boom and a chuck going. So the bass and the snare essentially. And then I would do toes. So I'd stand on the boxes and then it's kind of like a little mini stage too. Uh, (laughs) So I'd stand on the box and then tap my toes essentially. Or if I was sitting, I could really kick into them. And so I was doing that for quite a few years, but then just recently my dad, he's been building these cajones and I'm like, well, I better start playing these cajones on stage. So we've transformed my initial boxes into these double cajon kicking kind of performance I do now. So I have two bass kick pedals and then I have the snare engaged on one of the cajones and the snare disengaged on the other. And I kick on one side and I kick on the other with my heels now instead of my toes. And that 
definitely has made my performance way more interesting, I think. And you could do do more drum sounding percussion behind it, you know, boom, 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 boom. When you're on your toes, there's just too much going on and my ankles can't handle that, but my heels. That's right. So anyway, yeah, that's what, that's the cajones. It's a bit of a shaky graves thing you got going there. I noticed last time I saw you, Harry Manx used to do the same kind of thing as well. So these are guys that have been solo performers and like you wanted to get those layers uh, of sound around them as a solo performer. Yeah, and totally. uh, I think it's totally great. And I will say for our audience, I do own two of these cajones. I think I have a third one on the way. I had to give it up for somebody else, but yeah, these are fantastic. In the shop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've gone through quite a few different variations of how to build them. And I think we've got a nice new way going right now. Dad's been busy in his workshop for Christmas and yeah. Perfect. We will put uh, links to your dad's uh, company or the website so that people, if they're interested in buying a cajon for somebody for Christmas, they really are beautiful. And even if you don't play them that often, they make wonderful coffee tables. That's right. (laughs) We have two up in our place. So you started playing live. You went to Bluegrass Camp, and that's really cool, by the way. And that's something I think a lot of people may not realize that these types of camps exist out there. I went to one as well in Halliburton, Ontario, years ago, part of the Halliburton School of the Arts program. And it really helped me a lot. playing with a whole bunch of different people who were a lot better than I was. But I learned how to improvise, and I was taught by a wonderful instructor by the name of Clark Gutel. Unfortunately, Clark is no longer with us, but he was a protege of the great Lenny Bro, and he had a real gift, the same gift that you have, Heather, of making people feel like they were able to actually play music and have fun. So you play all these instruments. What would you love to be able to play that you can't play now? Oh, I'd love to play the fiddle. Uh-huh. <laughs> I tried. I tried. And the, the pedal steel proficiently would be great too. Uh, I have a pedal steel and I, I did give it a go for a couple years with this kind of country rock band I play in. And I honestly just couldn't sing along. I couldn't keep up my knees, my feet and both hands and my brain couldn't keep up. So I couldn't sing comfortably, but I can sing quite comfortably and play the lap steel. So I've decided to push that away and stop learning and investing my time in the pedal steel. But I wish it, it just clicked. I just, right. I wish it clicked in it and the fiddle too. I've got a fiddle tucked away in the closet and I gave that a whirl too, but that's another instrument you don't see a lot of fiddle players singing. Like Bruce Molsky is one of my favorites, old time fiddle player. And he sings while he plays the fiddle and it's just, it's jaw dropping. You don't appreciate it until you see somebody do it. But those are the two instruments I'd really like to play, but I don't think it's in the cards right now in this stage of my life. Well, you do have a lot on your plate. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've cut it off now at banjo, guitar, and lap steel and harmonica and, and the f- foot percussion, but that doesn't really count. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, your whole recording studio, and I know you do a lot of recording work for other artists in the area of Kimberly, and that's really yeah. nice of you. You help them with their music and their uh, recordings, and that's great. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your musical influences. I know in the bio you gave me, you cite people like Hendrix and and CCR and so on, but who inspires you the most or who inspired you the most when you were younger and who inspires you the most now? Who inspired me the most when I was younger? Probably Fleetwood Mac, I would say. And like the Beatles, this is the stuff that my, my dad was listening to that inspired me the most. And now what inspires me the most, there's some of the players and instructors at this bluegrass camp that I was mentioning, like Jason and Ferris Romero, they're big influences on me, but probably right now, my biggest influence is a couple of sisters and they're called Larkin Poe. 
mm-hmm. Rebecca and Megan Lovell. And they're my biggest influence, bar none, for sure. Why is that? Just their style. They're not a duo. They front a full four-piece band. And they actually came from the bluegrass scene first, which I didn't even realize after I was listening to their blues stuff. Megan is the dobro player, lap steel player. And then Rebecca, she started playing mandolin. They have a third sister too that was playing with them. But basically their genre now is blues and they stick to that. They don't dabble too much in the bluegrass stuff anymore, but they have an extensive amount of covers online too. They've got this kind of cover channel and they've covered so many great songs and they harmonize just beautifully. So I was hoping Casey, when we found out he was a boy, some, a little part of me was like, oh, I'm going to miss those sister harmonies. Cause I, if he was a girl, then they could have had these singing sister harmonies, but I'm, I'm hoping someday they'll play music together and they'll harmonize as a brother sister duo, maybe with mom involved. But anyway, this, this <laughs> Larkin Poe, they're my favorites because she plays in the same tuning that I played in. For so many years, I'd look at lap steel artists and they were always playing in dad gad or dad dad fad, the open D or open mm. E tunings, a lot of the, the bottleneck style slide. And right. she coming from the Dobro, she just decided to keep it in um, the standard GBD, GBD tuning of the Dobro. And I'm like, well, shoot, why don't I just do that? And I just needed the right set of strings to get the tension perfect. So it sounded really good. And anyway, she's probably my biggest influence right now with playing lap steel. And then Rebecca, I can sing in her range. She's an amazing singer, but when I sing along to her, I get better. You know what I mean? Right. We're in the same right. vocal uh, right. kind of range. Yeah. So they're my favorites. Okay. So and you may have already answered this, but if you could sit in and play with anyone, who would it be? So I was thinking about this the other day, actually. And so I got two. So one one would be Dolly Parton because she's a living legend. Yes, she is. And she's just, she's such a wonderful person. She's just such an amazing songwriter and had such an amazing musical journey. And I'm a big fan of Trio um, with her and Linda Ronstadt and Emmy mm-hmm. Lou Harris. They're a big influence on me. But I was thinking a little bit uh, beyond just the artist. And I would love to sit down and play with Robert Johnson. Because Ah, I wonder if he could shed some light on the whole mystique behind the selling your soul to the devil and the, (laughs) and the 27 club, you know, how that started with him. And if I could talk to somebody beyond the grave, it'd probably be him because if that had any truth to it, or if the artists leading the rest of that myth, if they have anything to do with it, that'd be kind of cool to play with him and ask him in the flesh. If, if that was a real thing or is this all just coincidence? Or metaphorical. Well, you might be interested in knowing that we have a podcast episode coming up called The Old Guitar, which has ties to the story of Robert Johnson and his guitar. As I'm sure you know, as the story goes, Johnson met the devil at the crossroads and made a deal with him to become one of the greatest guitar players of his time in exchange for his soul. The devil agreed, asked Robert Johnson for his guitar, the devil tuned his guitar, gave it back to Johnson, and gave him the ability to play better than any of his contemporaries. I know that musicians often don't like when you say, well, boy, you sound like so-and-so and so-and-so. And I do want to talk about the tracks that you've submitted for the show, but I have to say, you know, I've listened to them over and over again, and I spent today listening to them with headphones on, and you do have a quality very similar to Emily Lou Harris. Lovely. That's good. And, and another woman by the name of Eileen Jewell. 
who did this wonderful record called Queen of the Minor Key. And I also think you have a bit of Steve Earle in you, too. Let's jump to those songs. So the first song you submitted, The Black Queen, which we played for the intro to this show, is very different from the other tracks you submitted. It's very much a bluesy tune, a lot of great guitar work. So who is The Black Queen? Oh, Annie Duke. I was playing a lot of poker at the time. And I I read a biography of this poker player named Annie Duke. She was actually what got me going on that tune, Black Queen. I'm singing it as if she's walking into a room and I'm observing her. She's very successful in the poker playing world. And I always thought it was pretty cool to have a woman at the table because they're a minority at the final table of the World Series of Poker. She influenced that song. Powerful, strong female role, I guess. (laughs) Well, and that's certainly a powerful song. It really is a hardcore blues song. I love it. (laughs) I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So then I want to jump to One Light Town, and I'm going to guess that this is about Kimberly BC. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that first song was written a long time ago, but I wanted to add in one of my old tunes. I've been living in Kimberly for about eight years now, but my husband and I had met, I guess we've been together about six years. We met on a dog walk. So I was walking, I was showing a girlfriend of mine had a longboard in a parking lot. I had just been freshly swept by the street sweepers. And my husband, Nick, he was walking by with his dog, Lola. And Lola was pulling at the leash and I had my dog, Charlie, off leash. And of course, my dog, Charlie, runs over to to Lola and Nick to say hi. And so I have to go over there and make sure he's cool and stuff like that. So that's how we met. My dog ran over to his dog and then we got to Channing. And that is the beginning (laughs) of One Light Town. So it's sung through the eyes of my dog, Charlie. But it's basically about the story of how we met. And Nick and I had just gotten out of two different relationships. So we were both a little delicate at the time, but we couldn't pass each other up at the moment. So that's kind of what One Light Town's about. Right, right. And uh, there's still only one light there now or has expansion got to the point where they're going to build another one? No, just the <laughs> still one. Still the one, huh? Light, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful song. The next tune I want to talk about is Ghost Town. So let's play the clip and then I'll tell you what I think it's about and you can tell me how wrong I am. We place the concrete stones down at their feet. The epitaphs I sometimes read. I tread a little bit lighter over friends of mine who checked out before their time. Me and me. 
to me, this song almost feels like a tribute to the 27 Club. <laughs> uh, people who have died before their time. Right? Yeah, that's that's right. what I got from it. Yeah. But. So my regular job, I work for the city of Cranbrook. I get a lot of time. I'm blessed with a job where I don't have to do a ton of talking to other people and I can get lost in my own head and write music, at least lyrics. Mm. I can write lyrics while I work. And so for a few years before I became the arborist horticulturist, I was just a, a basic truck driver laborer. And I spent a lot of time in our graveyard and the parks department buries people. You go to the funeral agency to do all the arrangements, but the parks department of the city that you're burying your person in, we do, we dig the hole, we fill in the holes, we put the sod back and we just try to make the cemetery look pretty. So I spent a lot of time maintaining a cemetery and filling in. I never really did much of the digging except for cremation graves, but I did a lot of the filling in of the cremation graves. And so anyway, with my genre of music, I figured it was about time to write a grave digging song. So that's my grave digging song. So sung through the eyes of somebody digging and filling in the graves. And then I've got a couple people that I know in that cemetery and one in particular is we lost while I was in high school. And so that was the person I was referencing ah, right. that left before their time. Well, you know, there's been a lot of amazing music made in graveyards. And in fact, going back to the story of Robert Johnson, that's one of the theories about how he became so good. Apparently, Robert Johnson disappeared from the music scene in Mississippi for about a year. As the story goes... He was spending time with another great guitar player by the name of Ike Zimmerman. And they were playing in a graveyard because they could make lots of noise and no one would hear them. And Ike was essentially Robert Johnson's mentor. They were sitting in a graveyard, backs against gravestones, and Zimmerman was teaching Robert Johnson how to become a great guitar player. So there you go. Well, that would definitely add to the legend (laughs) if you saw him sitting in a graveyard, for sure. That's right. Okay, and so Departed Son... This struck me as a very personal song. Since I was way off on the 27 Club, I don't want to put forward a a particular interpretation, but it did seem like a very personal song, was it? Yeah, a super personal song. It was going to maybe be my wedding vows to my husband, but we talked about it before. We were going to have somebody read the vows and we say I I do's because my husband can get very uh, anxious around large groups of people. (laughs) Talking in front of people is, is definitely on the top of the list for people's biggest fears. And that's definitely one of his. So Departed Son was going to be our wedding vow song. So the Departed Son sounds like somebody that's maybe left this world, but really what it means is my husband and his family grew up in Cash Creek and Ashcroft. So they're a BC born family, but all of his family, uh, his uh, sister and his two brothers have moved to Alberta just close to when he was graduating. And they all ended up staying out in Alberta. And Nick was the one that wanted to stay in BC. So he moved back to BC and he's lived in in Parksville and uh, Kamloops. He's the departed son. So the whole family is in Alberta and he stuck it out in British Columbia because he wants to continue to be a BC boy. So he's separated from his family. So that's what the name kind of came from. And that's just me confessing my love for him in different ways. I can be a very extroverted person and I'm a musician. And he maybe doesn't feel super comfortable around large groups. So it's kind of juggling those emotions. That's our opposite effect that we have. I'm extroverted and he's introverted. And that's the theme of the song.
parted sun Are you done running? Cause this world feels just like a wheel spinning Okay, and the tune Smoky Mountain. This is obviously about the fires that have been going on in the interior of BC over the last number of summers. Am I correct? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that one's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. That one's, I was on the road to Bluegrass Camp, actually, so I was going to be away for about seven or nine days, I believe, and we had just gone on evacuation alert in Kimberley. So this was like three years ago. Yeah. And I wrote this song on the ride home, basically, from Bluegrass Camp, but it was sung through the eyes of someone that has had their town burned to the ground right. or be evacuated. They're evacuated and their town could burn down at any moment. I think Fort Mac was the one that I was referencing because that had just happened. But there are several towns now that can relate to that song. And when I release it, I hope it to be in the summertime where people can relate to it a little bit more because I know I was like, oh, I, I really want to release that this summer because... The fires were so bad, but really it's going to relate to any summer I release it because they yes. just keep getting worse and worse, don't they? Yeah, it produced a real visceral effect for me because I've been out there during those smoky days. So you're in a place that has broad vistas and perspectives normally, beautiful long views across the valley and the mountains, the Rockies in the background. And when that smoke sets in, it really feels claustrophobic, confining, otherworldly. The sky is orange. It's not the color it's supposed to be. And it really does get to you after a period of time. There was a time a couple of years ago when I was out in Kimberley during these uh, fires. And I had to leave. I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore after a couple of weeks of yeah. smelling like I'd been standing by the campfire all day and not being able to see anything beyond 100 yards because of the smoke. It really gets to you. Oh, totally. Yeah. I was pregnant when it was really thick here this last summer and I had just started work again and breathing heavily. And I had to wear a mask for a while outside, not for COVID, just to catch the sediment that was coming into my mouth. So I'd take my mask off and look at it and it was just like, looks so dirty, but it was just from the smoke. And we weren't even that close to it. Like we had the one up Lazy Lake, but I couldn't imagine being a couple kilometers away from it or working in it, trying to put out those fires. So mm -hmm. it's a... Yeah, that's for all those people. Well, hopefully with the rain we're getting now, we won't see the same kind of fire activity this summer. Yeah, so, I'll have to write a song about flooding now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Here's Smoky Mountain Blues. Well, everybody's left town. We're headed now a little further down the road To our friends and families praying God please don't let the fire take my Well, the final song you submitted is called Resting Place. I love this song. It seemed like the juxtaposition to Smoky Mountain Blues. 
Whereas Smoky Mountain Blues has that feeling of frustration with the atmosphere, the climate, the claustrophobia resulting from the fire and the smoke, but Resting Place seems like the opposite. Like, there's a degree of resignation, or at least acceptance. I, I didn't see it necessarily as a grave, but maybe I'm wrong. But it seemed like a recognition that even amongst all these horrible things that might go on in the world, that this is your resting place. That's right. You nailed it. Yeah. So I wrote that during the 2016 election. It already happened, and we're just paying a lot of attention to the news, the American news and world news sure. and the geopolitical climate of the time. Resting Place is about, I call it my ap- apocalyptic love song. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. As long as you're going down with the one you love, then everything should be okay. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Right. Just a song for my husband again. Ah, <laughs> lucky guy. <laughs> yeah, he's got a few now. With you, I Well, all these songs are fantastic, Heather, and I can't wait for people to hear them, and I can't wait to play them on future episodes of the show. This concludes part one of Long Haired Country Girl with my guest, Heather Gemmel. Heather will be back with me next week, along with Blair Packham, for the official passing of the jam. For what it's worth.